Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we are working through the book of Deuteronomy, chapter by chapter. We are at chapter 24 today. This is the infamous chapter in which a section of this is quoted by the Pharisees to Jesus in the New Testament, and his response is anything but expected. Um, We'll talk about that. We'll talk about a lot more in these law sections as well. Um, We're getting near the end of the long list of chapters in which there's these smaller laws um, that we have to talk about section by section or or almost verse by verse. So come along for the ride today. It's going to be a good one as we talk about Jesus and his answer. into chapter 24 today. Um, Interestingly, with this chapter, um, we have a few concession laws. Um, I'm not going to uh, basically work through all of them as concession laws. A few of them start with the the word if, um, but um, several of them also are just um, a little bit more just straight commands, um, and we'll talk about each of those different ones. Um, There's a lot of focus in this chapter in particular on... um, Uh, taking care of the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. Um, This is definitely a chapter that was um, focused specifically on people that are marginalized in many cases, and so um, this is, I would call, more of a defense chapter against that. Um, Last last chapter, we focused more on, like, um, the Israelite um, purity laws in some senses, um, whereas this one is really focused more on, like, um, how to treat people the father, the fatherless, the widow, and the orphans, as well as um, women that might have been divorced. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, this first law that we're going to talk about um, is the only law in Deuteronomy that has anything to say about divorce, which is really interesting. Um, but yeah, the focus of all of these really um, is focused on some kind of like um, um, protection for anybody that's poor. Um, and so this is a big chapter that's focused on that. There's really only one uh, law other than um, uh, the, I guess I would say there's really only one law in this entire section that um, seems to be focused on something not related to um, poverty. And that's um, in verse 8 where it talks about defiling skin diseases. Everything else pretty much you could argue is in some shape or form um, an outworking of preventing people from being poor, even the one that's preventing slavery. Um, I would say that's definitely trying to prevent um, people from being poor. So um, yeah, it's it's really cool to have passages like this. <laughs> um, a few of these chapters so far as I've been getting through them all have uh, been, I guess I would say, harder to do because, um, you know, different times, different cultures, and there's a few things that um, I would say that uh, even the New Testament has um, modified since the laws, and so those are always difficult to explain um, 
without uh, attempting to explain away in some sense. Um, but uh, this this chapter is going to be a lot uh, a lot nicer, um, and uh, it's going to be fun to get through and kind of see just uh, some of the laws that they had uh, put in place for the protection of people that are um, more unfortunate than ourselves um, and more unfortunate than some people in this time period. You'll notice, too, that there's a huge focus in... Um, uh, debt and loans. Um, this is something that Deuteronomy focuses in on a lot. You'll uh, even see a repeat of a few laws from other sections in this section here. Um, verse 5 is kind of a repeat law from um, chapter 20, and uh, way back a few of these laws are repeats uh, of, uh, um, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15 that we talked about, um, the uh, fatherless and the widow and, um, the poor and how you're supposed to, uh, make sure that you don't, um, uh, do security loans that take away their whole livelihood. So, um, it, a lot of this is in some senses a rehashing of some of those laws. And, um, that's to be expected because remember, um, that uh, we are actually in a whole section of the book of Deuteronomy. That's really just, um, specific stipulations. You can think of, uh, the, beginning of Deuteronomy in many ways, uh, way back, um, starting in like chapter four and five, where we kind of had more of like a sermon sort of approach to the law from Moses, um, as kind of the general stipulations. And then, um, from there on, basically from chapter 12, all the way through 20 chapter 26, we've been working through more specific stipulations. So, um, we're almost to the end. Chapter 26 will be the end. So let's go ahead and dive into chapter 24. If a man marries a woman who has become displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt, because that would be taking a person's livelihood as security. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. In case of defiling skin diseases, be very careful to do exactly as the Levitical priests instruct you. You must follow carefully what I have commanded them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way after you came out of Egypt. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Do not take advantage of any hire worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. 
Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I commanded you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. All right, so um, starting with the first one, this is the uh, infamous passage that the Pharisees will actually take to Jesus. Um, It starts with, if a man marries a woman who's been come displeasing to him. Um, this is very much uh, a case of displeasing, like even to like the eye, basically. So um, there's a sense here even of just like um, uh, that it's not even anything related to um, uh, anything that she's done. It's basically just that this guy's being kind of a jerk. And uh, as he's being a jerk, um, he decides um, to get rid of her. And uh, in this culture and in this time period, um, this would be something that you uh, did not want to do. This was something that uh, would basically reduce her to um, a stature in which it was probably very rare that she'd want to Uh, anybody would want to remarry her Um, and as a result of that um, this man is um, doing a huge harm to her and uh, so here's here's kind of the idea here with this passage Um, because uh, it doesn't ever explicitly say um, why he can divorce her there were two opinions that are kind of arose out of this um, law in the New Testament time period. And there was a more conservative and a more liberal approach to this law. The more conservative of these um, two camps said that a man can divorce a woman anytime he wants to. And uh, that's how it says here, as long as she's become displeasing to him, um, he can write her a ticket of divorce. And then the more liberal camp was saying, no, let's like look at like the way that this is actually written out. And maybe it's very much not um, just about um, anything, but maybe it's specific stipulations. And they were trying to find like ways to basically interpret this law in which um, uh, a man was prevented from basically just being able to write off his wife anytime he wanted to. And so these two camps were debating quite heavily. And so what happens in Matthew chapter 19 is uh, they uh, approach Jesus with the same question about this law. And um, they ask his opinion on it. What's going to happen if Jesus comes down on either side of this fence is uh, um, that basically everybody's going to label him either a conservative or a liberal. Um, according to their time period, I, I know those words mean a huge difference in their, in their time period, um, just more conservative with this law. Um, um, just kind of reading it for, um, the straight sense of it or being more liberal with an interpretation of this law. That's how I'm using those two words. Um, 
And so as a result of that, um, Jesus has to give a response to what follows. Um, you'll notice that um, after this, this, it's really just the first verse that, um, or the first line that people are debating. <laughs> Pretty much everything else um, is not brought up in the discussion with Jesus. Um, and uh, I'll talk about that before I even get to Jesus's answer of that first line. But um, it continues on and says that um, if he writes her a certificate of divorce, that's just basically saying that they, their marriage is annulled, gives it to her and sends it from her house. Um, and after she leaves the house, she becomes the wife of another man, um, which, again, that would be um, pretty rare even for her to get get to be remarried in those times of situations she probably would go back with her father and mother um if they were still alive that's probably the only option she had is to go back with her father and mother remember this is a very community-based society and so you wouldn't just have like single women living on their own this was something that uh, would be very 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 unlikely um, for her to live on her own she would probably end up back with her family and uh after she ends up with another man, basically, and this uh, second husband also decides to dislike her, or he dies. So basically, if he does the same thing, he's also a jerk and uh, writes her a certificate of divorce, or um, he dies, um, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to remarry her again after she has been defiled. Um, that uh, word defiled here is actually like... Um, the word for like to become ceremonially unclean basically so she is she is essentially like a representation of his sin um and she's become unclean to him um she can marry anyone else it, it doesn't specify that she like just has to be um un, unmarried the rest of her life it looks like she can marry anyone again she can marry a third husband if she wanted to um but the uh uh, the first husband cannot remarry her. This is a strict law. Interestingly, I wonder actually if um, the woman at the well in John 4 actually has this story. We're never told exactly um, why she um, had four or five husbands. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people forget that in their culture and in their time period where she was living was in Samaria. So they only obeyed the first five books of the uh, the law, and uh, because of that, um, they had a very different way of worshiping God, and uh, different practices a little bit. They were a little bit more into the occult and into, into mysticism than uh, than um, the nation of Judaism would be. But um, we learned that from the Book of Acts, actually. But um, the idea here is a lot of people think that she was just. Um, divorcing the men and uh, that would not have happened the men would have to have divorced her and um, because of this law they could have divorced her for any reason and it didn't have to be a marital unfaithfulness um, and uh, so it's it's an interesting thing where John 4 is often interpreted as she was like a prostitute or something like that and uh, that whole that whole chapter never says that um, it's it's something that we have um, imparted into that text and that's it's just as possible that she was um, doing the right thing the entire time and uh, the one thing that Jesus does give her a knock for is uh, living with a man while not marrying with marry, marrying him um, she seems to he he, uh, he seems to not be okay with that because he goes and asks her um, go bring your husband and then she has to like admit basically that she's living with another man so there's definitely a sense there where there's 
um, something going on there. But her living with another man was very much an outworking of the fact that she's been divorced four times. She probably, either her family has died, um, or her family didn't want to take the disgrace on their name of having their daughter come back after she's married for uh, four men, and each of them has found something displeasing in her. I mean, there's a million possibilities because of this law here. Anyway, that's beside this point. I just wanted to bring that up because it does matter to her story as well. Um, so after the second guy dies, um, the first husband can't um, marry her again. Um, the Lord actually says that's a detestable thing to him. And um, it actually would bring a sin upon the land of the Lord your God is giving us an inheritance. So the land is actually brought in here as the ending for this command, um, talking about how um, there are a few, there's a few sins in the book of Deuteronomy in which the land itself is actually... Um, um, harmed by sin if a sin happens upon it. And this is one of those times where um, when relationships and marriage don't work out and you um, treat people um, wrongly in marriage, you're actually affronting the land. And uh, the only other time I've seen this come up in the book of Deuteronomy is the case of murder. Um, so murder and um, marriage issues um, like are both two things that um, don't just offend God, um, but also um, uh, blight the land in a huge way and bring sin upon the land. So that's a really important thing to bring out here too. All right, so I promised that we'd get through um, uh, the story of Jesus and what he says. So let's go ahead and go to Matthew 19, and we'll look at that. In uh, Matthew 19, that's the famous passage where they bring this up. Um, so they bring him this law. And uh, I'll just go ahead and uh, read this section because it's really short. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Again, notice how they focus on the front part of that law, not actually the whole point of bringing that law up in the first place, which was really just to say, don't marry a husband that. Uh, that divorced you. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. Oh, sorry, I skipped the verse. Some Pharisees came to him to tell. Oh, no, 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 I didn't. Okay, cool. Um, so Jesus replies, Have you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? That's uh, quoting from Genesis 1, actually. And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's quoting from Genesis 2. Um, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So his response to this is very, very much a typical Jesus response in which um, he basically says, you're asking the wrong question. Y'all shouldn't be getting divorced in the first place. Um, this shouldn't be happening in the first place. And so then they're like, well, why then did Moses permit it? And uh, Jesus replies. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
the what I find funny about this is the disciples don't like this any more than the Pharisees do, because the disciples say to him next, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to get married. <laughs> and Jesus replies, not any everyone can accept this word, but it, uh, only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the king, kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So the idea here is that the disciples are being like, man, that's that's intense. Like uh, like you're upping the, the law from just like divorce is permissible to not permissible at all. And um, basically if you now, if you marry anyone after um, you've been divorced, you're committing adultery. Um, and the disciples just can't take it. Like they can't take it. And what's interesting here is Jesus responds, um, by saying that not everybody can accept that word. Like not everybody is going to, going to be able to, uh, follow that word. Um, and, uh, I like his line here because he says, but only those to whom it has been given. Um, which I find interesting because like, I think he's sort of saying something here that, um, is very, uh, careful by saying that um, he believes that there are some people that's going to hear that word and they're not going to be able to accept it. And he believes that there's going to be other people that hear that word and they are going to accept it. Um, and that the people that do accept it, that word is for them. And for um, uh, the people that don't accept it, um, that word is not for them. Um and I find that uh, a very interesting and nuanced approach to what he's saying here, um, especially because um, uh, it usually happens that people are trying to use passages like this to tell people um, how to live. And uh, I want to make a very clear distinction that Jesus here makes, where um, his point here is saying that he knows pretty pretty handedly that not everyone is going to be able to accept that. Um, like that it is a very harsh law, especially considering the fact that his disciples him, themselves had such a violent, not violent, but just a visceral kind of reaction to it. And so he, he makes this, he, he basically says like those that already are willing to um, think about this law and understand that this is the way that things should be. Um, those are the people that this word is given to. Um, and the people that are stubborn and uh, want to fight this law, um, it's not given to them. Um, and that I find is very like interesting um, that it's the acceptance of it that actually makes it for you, if that makes sense. That it's your willingness to actually hear his word that makes it prescribed to you. And what he says next is really, really beautiful. He says, um, for there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So his idea is um, there are people um, that have been um, forced or have chosen to live a life of celibacy, and these people um, hear that word, um, and they, um, if they're not forced into it, um, he does mention that some get forced into it, but if they're not forced in it, there are people that have decided never to marry in their whole entire life. And his point is like, if you marry and then get divorced, then 
you have to live that kind of celibacy life, right? You have to live the life of a eunuch after that. Um, and so he reminds them that, like, look, there's an entire group of people that either are forced or have chosen to live that way already. And um, it's basically like um, uh, unfair to say that a person that does get to marry once, um, like, that's a horrible affrontery law to make Jesus um, that once they get married, they can't get married again. Um, I think in, in a huge way, like um, this is, this is something that um, he's pointing to is that eunuchs live this way already. Um, and um, again, he ends this whole entire thing by saying the one who can accept this should accept this. And so it's interesting that he continues to make that kind of, um, specific line statement that like he recognizes that this is going to be something really hard and that not everybody's going to accept this. Um, and it's the willingness to listen to his word and the willingness to accept it that makes it a mandate for you. Um, and I find that, um, a very, very, um, uh, different approach even than like how we preach those types of passages today where we just say, you should accept this or whatever. Um, and I do think he's getting at that there. I think he's preaching at them a little bit too. But um, I think there is a sense in which like this is one of those passages where it's better to go and wrestle with it yourself and um, let the words of Jesus really work in your own heart and let those decide for you whether or not this is something that you're going to fight or this is something that you're going to accept. And if you accept it, it is for you. Um, and that's, that's something that I find really, really, um, different even about how Jesus approaches laws, um, is, um, oftentimes, um, he sees a sharp distinction between people that really want to accept his extreme teachings on things um, and really want to wrestle with things and, and want to up the ante, I guess I would say, on some of the Deuteronomy laws and people that just see it as hard teaching and walk away. Um, and so there's a huge, there's very much a call to a way of living and a call to a, a heart that's willing to work through some of this stuff. And uh, I personally would never judge anyone that um, got divorced and then remarried. That's just not my prerogative to do. Um, that is between them and this passage, how that works out. Um, and for me, that is not, um, that's not something that I even think I see Jesus doing is, um, uh, judging people that already have done that. I think what he's doing is I think he's, um, establishing that there are some people that are going to accept that law and some people that are not going to. And to the people that accept it, that law is for them. Um, that's kind of how uh, he seems to teach about it. And uh, it's a really interesting and nuanced approach. So I just wanted to kind of communicate all of that um, as how he goes about interpreting it. But notice too, we've talked about this before, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Notice how... Um, Instead of uh, spending time explaining Deuteronomy 24, um, he instead basically goes back to Genesis and spends um, a little bit of time in Genesis and says, like, hey, at the beginning, this isn't how things were. And this is, like I said, we've talked about this in the concession laws before. This is my basis for why the law, the laws in Deuteronomy can be updated or progressed in some way, shape, or form, as you see Jesus doing that. You see 
Jesus saying, um, um, hey, this law was actually just put in place because y'all were wicked. And so y'all needed a law, a concession law to be put in place to just deal with this kind of stuff for the time being. Um, But that's not actually the ideal. Let's go back to an earlier book in the Bible, like Genesis, and there you'll see the ideal. Um, And so, yeah, like there's a lot of there's a lot of things like that, even in these laws that we need to pay attention to. So it's not just me trying to explain away laws like slavery and all those these kinds of laws. This is very much a a thing that Jesus himself does. So um, let's keep that in mind as we continue to read through these laws. Uh, The next law, if a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. I love this because it follows after a really tense marriage moment. Um, Now, here's a happiness marriage moment that kind of follows right after it. And I like that the editor probably put this one right after just to be like, okay, we talked about like, problems with marriage. Let's talk about like happiness with marriage. And um, this is one that's actually just a repeat of chapter 20, so I won't go into it. You can go back to my episode in chapter 20 to see how I talked about um, how um, men weren't supposed to go to war um, for the first year, basically. Um, And if they were in the army, they were supposed to be sent back home, basically. So yeah, you can read about that all in chapter 20. Um, And my episode on chapter 20 gets into a lot of this law. So um, I I, I always love this law, this idea of like, you can't fight in the military for one year. um, uh, If you've been married um, less than a year, Um, it's just a beautiful kind of idea of like how the ideal of marriage was even more important than war in this time period. Um, the next one's interesting. Do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt, because that would be taking a person's livelihood as security. So I'll need to explain how millstones work here. There was a probably more of a larger millstone that was on the ground that was way heavier, and then there was a top millstone that you would actually turn and grind against the bottom millstone, and that would, you would put your um, grain in between those two stones, and as you're turning it, it would grind the grain up, right? Um, Very similar to how even coffee grinders work today, in a sense, Um, and uh, basically, the idea here is if there's someone that has a debt that is owed, and they have a millstone, they, the person that um, comes to t- um, make good on that debt cannot take the um, uh, pair of millstones, not even the upper one. The upper one would be the easier one to take, and they would leave the bottom one, basically. Um, if he does that, um, what he's doing is he's basically taking away their ability to m- get bread for themselves. So this is a really interesting law. Like Basically, it's putting a cap on debt um, uh repayment and you can't just take everything they own like they're allowed to keep the millstone so that they can grind grain and at least have bread on the table every day Um, they can't just take that as a a security deposit or something like that Um, it's it it is part of their their land and it's something that um, if you take away you're gonna like make them uh, starve And so the idea is to keep them from doing that, which is just a beautiful law. I honestly wish that um, our society today lived by that law uh, in some sense (laughs) and said, like, put a cap at, like, you can't just take everything a person owns, you know. Um, I guess we have bankruptcy laws for that in some sense, but still, um, that doesn't feel as as true to me or as right as what's, what's here, where it just kind of forbids you from taking too much. 
In verse 8, it says, in cases of defiling skin diseases, be very careful to do exactly as the Levitical priests instruct you. You must um, follow carefully what I have commanded them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way after you came out of Egypt. Um, So this is interesting. Um, Miriam in the book of Numbers uh, actually makes a huge accusation against Moses because Moses ends up marrying a Cushite woman. And as a result of marrying a Cushite woman, um, which does, by the way, imply that Moses had more than one wife um, because he marries Zipporah in Midian at first, and then he marries a Cushite woman later on. Um, So either either he had two wives at the same time or Zipporah died. There's possibility of that, too. Um, But, yeah, he does end up marrying a Cushite woman. And uh, Miriam and Aaron both decide to kind of rebel and say that Moses shouldn't be doing this and that they they themselves are going to be leaders and kind of there's this infighting kind of hostility going on um, in that whole story. And so as a result, um, Miriam is actually struck with a skin disease um, for speaking out against Moses and uh, God defends Moses. And so as a result of this, uh, the... Uh, idea here is to um, remind them that um, skin diseases are very important and very um, uh, indicating of uh, some kind of sin that's going on in their life is usually the way that they would see this. Um, This is why by the time you get to the New Testament, people would stay very far away from lepers and things of that nature as they almost assumed that there was some sin that was going on in their life. And this is kind of related to the idea that when Miriam sinned, she had a skin disease come on her. And so um, the idea is that here, and this is the part I think the New Testament um, people missed, is um, that the Levitical priests actually are supposed to be the intercessor between these people and God. And they're supposed to help these people um, not just live on the outskirts forever and ever, but they're supposed to um, be there and helping them work through this disease. And um, they're supposed to listen to them very carefully um, as they uh, work through this disease that's um uh, going through them. And I think the idea here here is there were several laws in which the Levitical priests are primarily in charge of dealing with clean and unclean issues. And so they're the people to go to if you need to get clean. Um, remember this word defiling um, uh, is very much like uh, the same kind of idea as unclean, right? And uh, it actually says in the book of Leviticus that a skin disease makes you unclean. So it's all, all everything to do with this concept is really to do with the Levites of the people you go and listen to very carefully when you are in an unclean state. And they are supposed to be the people that can represent you to God and um, uh, essentially um, make you clean again. Um, and this is the this is something that I think they lost out on by the time they get to the New Testament. They just kind of treat people with skin diseases as if they, they will always be unclean. Um, and uh, in this ver- in this verse, uh, I see a, a little bit of a different thing here where um, they're, they're, the Levitical priests act as an intermediary, and um, if they were to listen to them with everything that they instruct them to do, there is a way in which, like Naaman was cured in the Jordan River, right, um, that they could be brought back um, into the fold of God. Um, and so I think that this is something that's really um, meant to kind of um, start that. I don't know if it's saying that explicitly, honestly, um, but I do think that if you kind of read about the role of the Levites throughout the entirety of both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, like we've been doing, um, 
there is a sense in which, at least in Deuteronomy, we haven't done Leviticus yet, but um, there is a sense in which that's definitely the role of the Levites. All right, so in verse 10, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak at sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. So the idea here is pretty simple. Um, You're not supposed to... um, (laughs) you're not supposed to go into someone's house and demand for the loan, right? Um, This is something that still happens today even um, is a few like landlords will like go into the house that a person's like renting and they'll demand for the money inside their own home. And that makes people very uncomfortable. And uh, I see kind of an outworking of the law here, even um, just this idea of you're not supposed to go inside a house when you demand for payment, Um, do that outside of the house and, be kind to people. Otherwise, you're just really making people uncomfortable, right? Um, and uh, uh, as well, like, you're not supposed to, like, I think some of the um, idea here is you're not supposed to go in and start, like, assessing what's in the house and, like, what you could personally take, basically. Like, stay outside. You don't need to see what they have inside their house. Like, just demand the loan, be a nice person, and see if see what they can do. Um, and if they, like, are someone that... Um, uh, like can't basically make all of it and they just need like a security deposit or something like that. Um, they are to not, uh, go to sleep with whatever security deposit they ask for. If the person is poor, if the person is poor, they're not really supposed to ask for a security deposit. Um, instead they're actually supposed to return any kind of security deposit. They might even ask for like a cloak. Um, a cloak would be something that you wouldn't just use as a cloak. You would also use that as like your blanket to keep warm at the night. Um, so that's why they're supposed to return it by sunset. So your that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Interestingly here, this is something I really point out. Um, righteous here means um, it will be regarded as you doing right by another person, right? Like you're 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 in right relationship with that other person. And that's if you've been listening to my Roman series, that's a that's a point that I make a lot. That righteous doesn't mean you're being a good person. Um, it means you're doing good good by them. You're doing um, right things in a right relationship with them. Um, That's what that word means. Um, Verse 14, the next law, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether the worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, which I I love that law. Like, yeah, if someone's just like a visiting immigrant, um, don't like pay them less than anyone else, right? Um, Verse 15, pay their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. It's interesting here that the law indicates that they're to be paid each day before sunset. That's an interesting idea overall. Um, Some some places I've I've actually never been to a place and worked at a place that paid you each day before sunset sunset so um, that's definitely a difference in culture from their time period to here but um, uh, part of me wonders if it, how 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 my life would be different if I got paid every day for my work instead of uh, um, I get actually paid once a month so uh, it's just an interesting interesting thought that they were supposed to get paid every day um, before sunset um, so that they could go home and uh, you know um, have um, money for bread and things um, 
if they were poor. I don't know if this specifically just for because they're poor, they're supposed to get paid every day, um, or if this is something pretty normal um, for this culture and in this time period. Someone could probably look that up and see how Israelites paid um, um, their workers every day or if they paid them every day. I know there's an indication of um, uh, what there seems to be something similar um, with the workers in the parable of um, the workers that Jesus tells where they all get paid after one day's work. So, um, And a day's wages often comes up quite a bit. So it, it does kind of seem to imply that most people got paid daily um, just from different texts in the Bible. But someone can correct me on that if um, I'm going astray on that. But yeah, um, the idea here is that uh, if they're a foreigner, they're, they're to be treated and paid the same as any other person would be paid. Um, don't just shice them. <laughs> um, and the interesting thing here is if you don't treat them the same, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin because you haven't treated them well. Um, something for us to think about today even. Um, parents are not to point uh, put to death their children. Uh, sorry, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Um, this is interesting. This is basically saying that um, uh, children aren't supposed to die if a parent sins, and the parent is not supposed to be put to death if the children sin. This is interestingly kind of not followed um, with the story of Achan and Joshua, and I still haven't really worked out like how that works out a little bit. I do know that like, again, this is just a covenant law that um, we've talked about covenant laws before, how this is from the Israelites side of the fence, what they are and what they are not supposed to do. And um, a few times in scripture, you'll actually see God um, uh, say that they are to do things that are in direct conflict with a certain law that he gives to them that they normally weren't supposed to do. Um, a good example of this, even in the New Testament, is um, you know God tells Peter eat all these unclean animals, um, and Peter's like, I've never done that before, you know, um, and uh, I would be unclean if I did that. And uh, uh, God's like, do not call unclean what I have made clean, right? Um, so the idea here, in some sense, you know, God always can like. Uh, do that, right? He can always give a command that sort of overrides whatever laws he gives. And so that's as far as I've gotten with um, the Aiken story. Um, uh, if you don't know what story I'm referencing, um, you can go read about it in Joshua. It's a very interesting story. But I do like that this law is put in le- put in place as like a general rule of thumb that like um, even in their culture and in their time period, they've viewed the sins of the parents as their own sins and the sins of the children as their own sins. And they weren't to be punished for each other's sins. Um, and specifically they can be punished. I sorry, I should have said that better. Um, they can be punished, but they aren't supposed to die for each other's sins. Um, they're, um, the sin that's the sins that would lead to death, at least, um, those sins are on their own head, not on, um, either their father or on their son. Um, so, uh, the next, uh, a line says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Um, so don't treat, um, the foreigner or the fatherless as just someone that's like, um, you can just cheat and be a horrible person too, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So don't take 
uh, widow's uh, cloak at any point in time. It already mentioned that if they're poor, don't take the cloak, and it also now mentions if they're a widow, don't take the cloak. Uh, I will say if they were a widow, they probably were were poor, um, but um, still all the same, he's probably um, just uh, making sure that they understand widows go uh, qualify in that as well. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. This line comes up quite a bit in the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. And a lot of the time when there's like a social law in which you're to treat the poor well, he reminds them that they, they themselves once were poor. They were slaves in Egypt. And as a result, like, do to others as you would have had the Egyptians do to you, basically. And that's the idea here, is um, remember that you were in the land and you weren't treated well, so treat your people well, or you'll become the very thing that you say you hate, right? Um, that's such a unfortunate thing when you see people that have been oppressed then become the oppressors. Um, and that's something that uh, you see time and time again. Um, and so it's something that he's continually uh, commanding them not to become. Verse 19, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for uh, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. There's that line again. This is why I command you to do this. So here's what's really endearing to this whole um, section here. <laughs> Basically, we're talking about grapes, olives, and we're talking about um, grain. All things that you need. You need olives for oil, you need grain for bread, and you need grapes for wine, right? Um, for all three of these... Um, He's saying, like, you can harvest, but don't go over it a second time. Leave whatever is there there. And um, the poor can then go and glean in the fields after your harvest, and they can take whatever they want. Interestingly, this is how the book of Ruth um, begins and starts, um, is... Uh, Boaz is actually at the time of harvest, and so he's harvesting all of his crops. And uh, so Ruth is in the situation where she's a widow, um, as is Naomi. And so they are allowed to go and collect whatever Boaz does not harvest because he's supposed to not harvest everything. He's supposed to just give it one pass and not beat it a second time. And anything that's left over, Ruth can glean in the fields. And this is kind of the start of their um, marriage and everything that uh, happens there. Um, interestingly, too, um, the whole story of Ruth um, it shows up in a huge way um, in the last chapter that we talked about as well. And uh, uh, I actually had someone uh, reach out to me after uh, last week's episode and mention that um, uh, Ruth is actually the grandmother, well, great-grandmother um, of David. And uh, based on the laws in the last chapter that we were going through, um, David would have been not allowed to be in the assembly because he was only the third generation um, from a Moabite. And so he would he should not have been allowed into the assembly of God because he was only of the third generation. Um, and so, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thought there that um, even even in that law, David, um, there was some grace from God there. So I just wanted to bring that up as, as I mentioned, because I thought that was a really good point that I had missed. Um, one thing, too, I will point out is um, uh, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about the um, marriage law at the top. Um, there is one um uh, exception to the rule 
of uh, that Jesus has, and that is you can get remarried if there's sexual immorality. Um, if there's sexual immorality, you can get remarried. Also, um, if the person dies, you can get remarried. We see that in um, uh, Paul's letters, actually. We actually just talked about that in Romans 7 when I recorded that podcast. So that one's not out yet, but we talked about that a little bit. So those two exceptions, if the husband um, or wife dies, or if... Um, uh, you, uh, if your partner is in some way being sexually immoral, both of those situations are exceptions to the rule that Jesus gives where, um, you're not supposed to remarry if they get divorced. But any other reason, um, Jesus is, uh, prefers that you not do that. So I just want to make sure those exceptions were clear because, um, yeah, that is very much an extreme law in a huge way. So just wanted to bring that up. Um, thank you guys so much for um, tuning into this episode. I hope it brought you some peace, and we'll be back in your feed again next week. Bye. <laughs>